Covenant Church, but we are a, really a big family, and so we want to say thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. Thank you for choosing to uh, give up part of your week. Time is our most valuable uh, commodity in this world we live in, and you are giving some of it to be part of this today. So we want to say thank you for that. That's humbling on one respect. In another respect, we want to get to know you. And one of the ways we do that is this card. Uh, this card is sitting on the info table right out those doors just to your right. You'll see these cards, a stack of pins, and a bunch of coffee mugs that also happen to have coffee in them and a free donut at Stimmel's. And so we have all the motivation you need, um, if you didn't already have it, to go ahead and fill one of these out, put that in the little basket, take your mug with you, um, and let it remind you that there's a community waiting for you here that uh, is not only praying for you by name, because every time uh, we get those cards in the office, we pray for you by name. Uh, more than that, what we want to invite you to is something warm and welcoming, like what goes in the coffee mug is what goes into a church. It's a place where uh, you can wake up knowing that you're cared for, that you have people around you who are doing this with you, and so we want to invite you into that. So if you're a guest with us, by all means, this is one way to get to know you. Another way is to come and introduce yourself. I would love to meet you. Our elders would love to meet you. Um, Ken would love to meet you. We want to know who you are so that we can know how do we serve you, because that's what we do here together. Uh, last week, Greg started us off in our brand new series. See, I, what is it, this thing? Okay, I don't do that, but... I don't have a clicker or a finger that works, but Greg started our brand new series called Grow. And uh, what we've done for the last five weeks is we did dwell, which was really an inward thing. We focused on ourselves, we dwelled in the house of the Lord, and we were really built up internally by the promises of the Lord. And so we're moving very intentionally, if you'll watch with us, we're moving from dwell to grow. Grow is eight uh, more weeks, if you include this week. We have eight weeks as we walk through the fruit of the Spirit. And Everybody gets excited about growth, and we forget about these things that we call growing pains. And so I want to invite you into this series in a whole new way by telling you that growth can hurt. And so my invitation to you is actually a request of you. That as we go through grow, as we talk about love and peace and patience and kindness, that in order to actually grow individually through this and as a result become more relevant to a community and a world that is dying and in need of Christ, what we have to do is be willing to undergo the pain of growth. When my seven-year-old comes to me in the middle of the night and says, Daddy, my legs hurt, my knees hurt, my shins hurt, I know what's happening. She's growing. And the growth process is naturally painful. And so for you and I, when it comes to Scripture and looking at our spiritual lives and going, what does it mean to grow in love today? What I'm going to ask of you is that you would be honest with yourself. And only if we're honest with ourselves and our diagnostic of where we are in the journey to love better or to be more peaceful or to be more kind, only if we're honest will we then have the ability to take a step back, take stock of where we are and figure out that we absolutely need to grow. In one way, everything that we're going to talk about for eight more weeks is going to be the same. I was talking to Tim about this. He'll be preaching in October on kindness. And on one level, every single week is about the heart. They're all a heart issue. How do I become more loving? How do I become more peaceful? How do I become more kind? Well, it's about your heart. And yet what we intend to do for the next eight weeks is to be intensely practical. And so not only can you come in and check the box and go, I'll try to be more kind this week, Lord. What I'd love for us to do is be honest with ourselves and figure out who is it that we say we are? Are we really living that out? And if we were to live out what God says we could be, as Greg described it, if we opened the gift that God had placed in front of us, what fullness would there be to find in our lives and what would that do in the way it changes the community 
around us. So I want to invite you into this series formally. Greg kicked us off with this incredible introduction and these kind of huge ideas that are still swimming in my head. And so now this week we get really practical and focused, and we're going to start with love. And so what I'd like to do as we talk about love is I'd like to start by praying. And then we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles or you use your phone or however it is you use your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. And that doesn't begin to describe you. God, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we, we almost disassociate those things from you. And yet the only reason we have access to any of the fruit of the Spirit, to goodness or kindness or mercy, the only reason we have access to patience and peace, Father, that is you. So God, as we talk about love today, let us not take for granted the love that you first showed us. And then, Father, as we consider whether we love well, God, rearrange our hearts and our minds. Do away with old definitions and inadequate meanings. And allow us to see love as you see it so that we might show it to a world in darkness. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and for this time. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So love. What does real love look like, and how do we grow to live a life that truly displays it? Paul shows us a surprising truth, and many of you, I wasn't at your weddings, but I would imagine many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 in your wedding. And it'll be familiar if you don't remember it, but let's just read it. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And this is going to get really familiar. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes... What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. But then, when that completeness comes, then we shall see face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall see fully, even as I am known fully. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God sent to us. What's important for us to understand first and foremost is the context with which this is written. This is written to the people of Corinth. This is not written to me at my wedding in 2005 or you at your wedding, whatever year you got married. Although love is patient and loving is kind, and that does apply to us personally, contextually, this was to a people, the people of Corinth. And if we don't know what Corinth is, then we don't really understand the context. And so what was Corinth? Corinth, if you take uh, ancient Greece in the time that this was written, Corinth was kind of this crossroads city. All trade passed through Corinth one way or the other. So if you imagine an hourglass, okay, you have an hourglass, tip it on its side. 
And so all trade from east must go through the little middle piece, which is Corinth. And all trade from west must go through the little middle piece, which is Corinth, which is to say that Corinth was the hub of commercial activity. More so than that, it was uh, this place, it was kind of like if you imagine New York City in a modern term. You don't go to New York City to just kind of live, you go to make it. And so Corinth was a place where people went to make it and make it big. You didn't just go to make it, you went to make a name for yourself. It was a place of incredible importance. It was the seat of ambition and the seat of competition and the seat of pride in the ancient world. They actually coined a term for it, and it was to Corinthianize something, was to live in utter moral depravity without rules for the benefit of self. Because it was such a competitive place. There was no morality involved. It was just how big can you make it? The temple Aphrodite up on the hill outside of Corinth, every night a thousand prostitutes would come out of the temple of Aphrodite and into the city, and they did not want for business, according to the texts. This was a place where anything goes, and as long as you make it, you make it. If you read chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, you can get a sense for what the people were dealing with, for what the culture was like. You and I, we read in the Bible where it says, flee sexual immorality, or, or I've never even actually wondered, why is it that Paul is talking about prostitutes? Well, the reason is the church at Corinth was struggling because their culture was awash in immorality. And so he actually has to write to the church and say, listen, you guys need to understand that being with a prostitute may not be the best idea. And you and I in 2016 go, who wouldn't know that? But to understand the context is to understand what's happening. This is a place of just insanity. What's actually happening here is beautiful. So I go back and I read verse 1 through 3 again. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, I speak in tongues. If I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, if I don't have love. So then verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge. If I have faith, it can move mountains. If I don't have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor, I give over my body to hardship that I could boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. We read these things and we think, what a theoretical, kind of beautiful, poetic uh, construct that Paul has created. This is not poetic. This is not a metaphor. This is not a theoretical you know, this could be what your life would be if you believed in Jesus. What Paul is actually doing is he's laying out what an amazing church, the church at Corinth, is. They're living in this incredible place that is the seat of all competition. It's the seat of all knowledge. It's the place where commerce passes through. It is where fortunes are made. And the church is doing these things, Paul says. The church is prophesying. The church is giving ridiculous amounts of money. The church is seeing people brought into safety. The church is active. So what Paul is saying, he's not bashing them. He's saying, you guys are doing amazing things. Prophecy, miracles, wild generosity, because Corinth is a city where you do big things. And so the church at Corinth is now doing big things. And yet there's a problem. In a sense, Paul says, you're looking at the wrong dial on your dashboard. You ever driven someone else's car for a, a season, had a rental car, and you don't know where anything is? And the light comes on, and you don't know if that's the tire is low light, or the engine's too hot light, or you, there's, it, it can be disconcerting. You could be thinking the gas tank is full, and it just means the engine's overheating, and now you're pulled over on the side of the road. If you don't know what dial to look at, if you don't know what the dashboard is doing, then what happens is you get yourself into trouble. You, you mistake one dial for another, and all of a sudden you're doing great with this, but you're pulled over on the side of the road. And this is what Paul is saying. 
Paul's saying basically what you do is the wrong dial to look at. What you do is the wrong dial to look at. And they're saying, yeah, 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 but, but look how we stand out in this city of big ideas. We're making a name for Jesus. Paul says, no. It is not what you do, but whether you love that is the true indicator of your heart. It's not what you do, but whether you love that's the true indicator of your heart. I could explain it this way. If I clean my house for my wife, because I love you, and I clean my house really well, the, the carpet has those nice vacuum lines in it, everything smells good, dishes are done, not just done, but put away, right? Over and above here. If I clean my house, and, and the reason I clean it is because I want her to come pat me on the back, or because I have an agenda, and I hope if I do this for her, quid pro quo, maybe something for me. If that's why I clean my house, am I serving her? Is the question. I would argue that that is self-serving because I'm cleaning for her so as to get for me, right? And so if I clean my house without agenda or if I do some secret service that she won't even notice, I tighten this hinge or I, you know, something she won't even notice for weeks at a time and I don't go, hey, hey, go check the hinge. That's service. That's the heart of love, but the other is self-serving because ultimately the point of me serving her is to have it come around and benefit me. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and we go... Sounds great, but that's a lot. What's the point of that? I would argue the crux of this little passage here that can be way too much to take in in one week is in verse 5. The second half of verse 5 is that it is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. I serve my wife for her, that's love. If I serve my wife for me, that's self-seeking. And all of these other things on the list are tied into this seeking of self. So, so why are we impatient? Love is patient. Why am I impatient? Because I feel like my time is more valuable than whoever else is in front of me at the line in the grocery store. And so if the, the express line is not moving fast enough because this genius has 23 items in the 15-item lane, come on. If I can't get through the light because you're asleep at the wheel, you're texting your friend, or come on, my time is important. It's about me. I'm impatient. Why do I envy? Well, love doesn't envy. Why do I? Because I see you have a really nice big TV, and I, I, I want a nice big TV. What is boasting? Love doesn't boast. Boasting is when you're in a conversation, and you're listening, and you're listening, and you're listening, and you're waiting. And I know this too well because I do it. And what you're waiting for is the chance to turn the conversation to go, that, that's great, but listen to this about me. You know when you're talking to somebody and you can tell they're not listening but thinking of what they're going to say next? You know they can see the same thing in you. Love isn't easily angered. Why are we easily angered? Because we're entitled. I've been wrong. This is unjust. I deserve better. I've, I have to wait how long to get a new social security card? Not that I'm speaking from personal experience, but it took me like a month to get a driver's license here. 
because I had to wait at 12 different offices. I was angry. I'd come home and be like, I'm trying so, I'm trying to follow their rules. And it's sin in me. It's self-seeking because rather than just going through the motions I'm supposed to go through, I'm impatient because they're violating my time and I'm, I'm angry because this is an injustice and I should get what I want. Pride, unkindness, dishonor, it's all rooted in self. I think it's important we as a church take a look at the part where it says it keeps no record of wrongs. This is a tough one. We call it keeping short accounts. Culturally, this is hard. Societally, we have a problem with this. In our city, we have a problem. In our church, we have a problem with this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. To keep a record of wrongs is self-seeking. Why? Because it allows me to feel superior because I remember when you did this and this and this. And in this church, the pastor has ears. People talk and whisper, and I see a church of people who mean well and are doing well and are moving in the right direction, and then there is pain underneath the surface for some people. And there are unreconciled hurts still. And people will say, hey, this thing happened. This guy said this in January of 2015. And that was not an easy time for us. And he said this, and I'm still not over it. And this says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Which means what? It doesn't sweep them under the carpet and say, I'm willing to let that go. It addresses them. Because God is a just God and God makes things just. And so if we're to imitate God and we have wrongs, a list, an account with someone else, we go to them and we say, listen, you said this, you did this, you were this, and I'm still not over it. That's my sin, but I need you to know so we can figure this out. That's not easy, but love is not easy. I may need to make a phone call to someone in Texas if I, I got to look at my own heart. Where do I have a record of wrongs that I've not reconciled that I need to go, you know what? That's on me because love doesn't keep that and I got one. Love doesn't seek its own. This is funny. This is kind of like toddler theology. You and I being the toddlers in this story. Anybody who's been around a toddler long enough knows that the second you want to get out the door quickly, the toddler makes a decision to uh, become really independent. I have a four-year-old, so she's no longer a toddler. She's now a preschooler, but it doesn't matter. She's still incompetent at all things in life, right? So we'll be ready to get out the door, and she'll sit down by the back door, and we'll say, let me put your shoes and socks on. And she goes, no, no, no. I do it myself. Sound familiar? I do it myself. I do it myself. And so to watch a four-year-old put their socks on is the ultimate exercise in patience. As it gets snagged on the big toe and then it turns around the wrong way and the, the heel is on the top and everything's wrong and she's getting frustrated. She finally gets it figured out and I'm like, okay, let me put your shoes on. To which the response is, ah, I do it myself. And the part of me that's a good parent wants to give them independence and let them learn their way to do it. And the part of me that's a terrible parent wants to throw them out the window and burn the shoes and just be done with the whole thing right? This is how you feel. And so she starts putting her little shoes on, and they're Velcro shoes. This is not difficult, right? And somehow it won't go in just right, and now the sock is funny, and then she finally gets up, and she's all proud, and it's 45 minutes later, and we don't even need to leave anymore, and the shoes are on the wrong feet, you know? (laughs) I do it myself. What is that? She's four. 
She's been doing it for two years. Every human heart has a deep desire for independence. We are desperate to be out from under the rule of whatever authority there is above us. And my four-year-old is desperate to be out from under my authority. And it's displayed in these ways. You and I are desperate in our sinful nature to be out from under the authority of a creator God. And so we are the toddler. I do it myself. I can save myself. I'll figure it out myself. And what we end up is we've got toothpaste in our hair and our pants are on backwards and we're locked in the bathroom and we wonder how we got there. God, how did you let me get here? It doesn't end. People in the room have teenagers or have had teenagers. Teenagers don't need your help. They know what they're doing. They're invincible. How does that work out? It's rooted in selfishness, self-seeking. I want to be my own master. And then it brings its way out into our world, the full-born resentment of authority. We don't grow out of this selfishness. As adults, we just learn how to make it more palatable for society, how to, how to kind of cloak it better so that no one sees that we're ultimately selfish. We don't lose our independence. We just hide it better. We have a day in our country, this is not easy, because our culture celebrates independence. We have a culture that says you make yourself, you make your own man, you pull yourself up your bootstraps and you do your best. This is America. Independence, we shoot off fire. We blow things up in the sky to celebrate the fact that we're no longer slaves to those Brits that were taxing us. And this is two months after we all write a big fat check to the IRS for taxing us. What is that? We love independence. And yet if you were a follower of Jesus today, the moment you surrender your life to Jesus, you are in essence taking a vow of dependence. You are giving up independence and allowing yourself to be dependent on the cross of Christ. Because here's the reality. We can't be dependent on the cross of Christ for our salvation and then independent of all of his other stuff in the rest of our life. It doesn't work that way. When we surrender, we are saying, I am no longer independent. I am now dependent upon you for everything. And that's hard for us because everything in us and everything in our society says that's not the way it should be. And yet the essence of sin is wrapped up in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the one commandment. You pull the thread on that and the whole list comes out. When we hear it, we think of the God before me, there's an idol, or there's a Buddha, or there's some other thing. And in our society, the God that we hold before God is me. My time, my agenda, it's my money. And what we end up doing is we build ourselves into a really secret God. And on the outside, we look good. And on the inside, we go, but this is about me. That's the part of our heart that desperately wants to have our own authority to be independent. It says to God, I get it myself. I do it myself, God. I can save myself. And so we wrap ourselves in good works. Because if people see that, maybe we'll, we'll save ourselves. We wrap ourselves in success or prosperity. We wrap ourselves in legacy that we can hand down to our kids. And all of that ends in misery. Scripture says all of those things, read Ecclesiastes, all of it is vanity. That the only thing that lasts is that which is eternal, and none of this is that. 
Even temporary happiness melts into a deep longing for real meaning and real fulfillment. Even the most beautiful temporary happiness is just that. It's temporary. Because I can't produce salvation. I've tried. I cannot produce salvation, much less lasting hope in myself or in others, much less lasting joy for any period of time. So what we do, what I do, is I pour my life into trinkets. Get the newest gadget that's out there. Maybe that'll distract me long enough so I don't remember that it hurts. We pour our lives into ambition. Maybe if I can just get to the next rung on the ladder, maybe that will do it for me and I'll feel better about myself. We pour our lives into people who will validate us. And if we're really honest, who will worship us on some small level and tell us that we're valuable. People in Corinth said, we work hard, we do big things, we give away our money. And what Paul is responding by saying in this text is he's basically saying, your self-justifying of your actions leads to arrogance. And your arrogance is revealed in your entitlement, and your entitlement is shown out through your resentment. And what happens in the Christian's life when we become entitled, we become resentful. Because we say, God, I don't deserve that hardship. God, I follow your rules. Why is this happening to me? I did what you asked and you bring this tragedy? I'm out. Or we look at what someone else has and we go, they don't follow any of your rules and I do and they have that and I have this. How is that right? And that's the entitlement of thinking that we've earned something. See, the gospel is not opposed to effort it's opposed to earning so this is not to say stop trying this is to say that there is no earning available in the gospel of jesus christ that you can do it all and still be bankrupt if love is not the base i tell our seven-year-old to make her bed every day i've been telling her that for a few years now I think she was probably four when she started, which means we need to get the second one on the make your bed every day routine. We didn't tell her why. It's going to help you learn to value your stuff. It's going to make you a good steward of, of your things. It's going to help you live an organized life. It's going to set your day in proper routine in motion. We don't tell her these things. That 30 years from now, she's going to be making her bed and wonder why she makes her bed every day. She's a good kid, though, and so she kind of got it. We said, make your bed every day. She makes her bed every day. And this is different than some of the other things she does, because other things, she'll be real honest and go, hey, if I do this, will you give me that? Which is a lot of what uh, I see in myself with God. If I follow these rules, will you bless me with this? Serving so as to get something is just self-serving. But she doesn't know what the bed thing is for. She doesn't get anything for it. It just has to be done. My seven-year-old makes her bed simply to please me. Which doesn't sound that profound until you apply that to the way we live in respect to the Father. She gets nothing. She does it because I've asked her to and because it pleases me. That's the heart of true love. There's nothing in it for her. And there's everything in it for me to watch this child trust me. 
And what our God deeply wants us to do is simply trust. Every once in a while, I would sneak up to her room when she's eating her oatmeal or dawdling downstairs, and I would make her bed for her. And I'd take a little note, and I'd write, love serves, on the note. I'd walk away and just let it rest, trying to teach her grace, that she earned nothing, but sometimes good things come to us because we have a Father who loves us. Love serves. A few weeks later, I was dawdling myself one morning, and I come up to my room, and our bed is made. Oh, boy. Pillows are kind of sloppily on there. You know, you could tell that this is the handiwork of a really determined six-year-old who can't quite get her arms around a queen-size bed. And on a little purple post-it note, backwards E's and all, it says, love serves. And what you get from that is that grace can be learned. That grace tumbles out of the heart of love. She didn't wait for me to find it. She went to school, didn't say a word. But love serves. It's not self-serving, it simply serves. If we wanted to define love, we would say love is the giving of oneself for the benefit of others. We would say love is not a feeling, love is an action. Anybody who's been in church any amount of time has heard that, and yet What is it? Love is giving of itself for the benefit of others. When I committed to love my wife until death do us part, that wasn't a commitment to feeling something for her. In fact, when I proposed, I listed all the things that could go wrong in the future. It was a long list. And I said, I'm going to be here anyway. Because love is not a feeling. Love is a doing. I don't feel for her until death do us part. I will live for her until death do us part. That's love. And yet even that is imperfect related to what God has already done for us. What does this love look like? John 15, 9 through 7. Jesus is speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I've kept my Father's commands and I remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love gives of itself for the benefit of others. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you so you might go and bear fruit that that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. Jesus talks about this new love, an old covenant made new as I have loved you. And this is before Jesus has taken the cross, and so the disciples must be like, okay, well, whatever that means. And I can imagine as the world goes dark and the 
in the sky in the afternoon as Jesus hangs his head and breathes his last and the disciples have scattered where they go, oh boy, this is a bigger love than we ever imagined. In the Old Testament, love was seen in an ocean or in the stars or in a sunset. Love was on display through nature. But love was a distant force. And Jesus comes in the New Testament to make love personal again. The difference between the Old Testament love and the stars and New Testament love is that New Testament Jesus' covenant love is it is love for you. And it is on display not in the stars or a sunset or the cross, but the cross. Jesus, in his hour of need, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is as if God looks at his son in his anguish and says, because we love them so much. Greater love is no one than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends, that he would pour out his blood for his friends. Not his servants. But his friends. Because there's difference between when a friend serves you and when a servant serves you. The waiter brings me more iced tea because it's their job. My friend visits me in my hour of need because of love. This is the gospel. When someone says God is love, it can mean nothing less. And so how do we have that love? How do we live that out? John 15, 4, he says, remain in me As also I remain in you, no branch bears fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So how do we grow in love? He says, remain in me, abide in me, rest in me, trust in me, know me. If you took one of these massive trees, we're in all of the trees. If you didn't know that, we moved from Texas where we don't have trees like this. And we see these trees in Winter Garden, we see these trees just driving down a country road, and these 60-foot tall trees with these beautiful big branches, and we just go, whoa. And you may be used to it after years living in this beautiful black swamp of yours, but we're not used to it. And if you took one of those trees and you were able to cut the earth out from below it and you could pull back and see a cross section, what you would see is like that hourglass turned on its side, it would be back right set up because the biggest trees have the deepest roots. It's mirrored in the root system. That a tree can only grow taller as the roots grow deeper. It can only bear more branches and more fruit as the roots grow further out. That when you look at a tree, what you don't see is the depth of the growth of the roots. And when a, true, when a tree is, is imbalanced, it falls in a stiff wind because the roots can't hold it. And so when he says, remain in me, no branch bears fruit by itself, you must remain in the vine. What I'm hearing is we need to get rooted properly. Trying to grow in love without growing deeper in the source of love is a fool's mission. And so if we are to know Jesus and make him known, that's why we exist as a community we got to start with no Jesus. Drive the roots deeper. Drop into greater growth. So that the branches that God intends to grow through us, the shade provided for the friend in need, the fruit provided for the person who's hungry, those things can come because we've first done the work of getting the roots properly planted. 
That means we have to be rooted in God and not in ourselves. And so what we get from Jesus is this remain in me. Abide in me is the same thing you hear from a father talking to a child. Rest on me. Recharge on me and then go play. When a child is upset, the child immediately runs to the parent. The parent has the ability to calm the child, to restore the child, to whisper something in the child's ear that says, you're going to be okay. And then off the child goes to play again. And we are no different. We live in a world that is sapping our energy and our strength. We live in a world that has a lot of demands on your time and your patience and your emotions. And, And what God deeply wants for you to do is abide. To come and rest in him, to come and sit on his lap. And then to go play. To go demonstrate the love that he has for us that he first showed us in Jesus. To go demonstrate the fullness of joy and the fullness of freedom for others to see. To go and love wildly and ruthlessly in the world around us. Knowing that safety and security is not in any of our status or our significance. It's not in our paycheck. It's not in our job title. Our status and our significance is in the Father. And if we abide in him, then that's clear to us. And we can go and recklessly love the world. Why don't we love recklessly? Because we're deeply afraid of rejection. Why don't you tell your neighbor about Jesus? Because you're deeply afraid of alienating yourself from them. And yet what it's saying is if you abide in me, your safety, your security, your life is in me. So you are now free to go and do whatever it is you're called to do in this world. When people reject you, and they will, when they curse you, and they will, God says, I'll be here, abide. Stay in me, and then go and do my will. Love is not self-seeking. It's rooted in the depth of the cross of Christ. And if we start every day there, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends, and we remember what was done for us. The challenge becomes, what does it look like for us to lay that out for others? It doesn't mean we're all going to be martyrs in the kingdom. What it means is we take captive this self-leading idea and we turn it into a serving others paradigm. And you and I live with eyeballs that are looking at the world going, how do I serve you? Because what we see is the religious person says this, look at how I stand out by what I do. And the follower of Jesus says this, Look at the one in whom I've stand because what's been done for me. Religious person says, look at how I stand out. And the follower of Jesus says, look at the one in whom I'm stand." It's all about where we place the focus. So may we love in such a way that it points to nothing less than the Savior. May we be a people whose lives are so recklessly loving or so ruthlessly loving or so deeply loving that people go, that points to something greater. So how do we apply this? How do we make something that can still be impractical? How do we make it practical? I actually have four application points, and you can have one or none or all. It's up to you. Point one, abide this week. Start your day with God. Put your phone in a different room. Plug your device in in the laundry room. Set your Bible out, set the coffee maker to program at whatever time is early enough that you can still have it and have your day. Application one is abide. 
know the love of the Lord and be overwhelmed by it and watch the way that it cascades into your life. Second application point, love keeps no record of wrongs, so why should we? This week, my challenge for you, if you are holding on to something that someone has done, be they in this building, across town, or across the country, let's write those this week. Clear those accounts and become a people who keep no record of what was said six months ago or two years ago or was done to me in 1976. It doesn't matter. And the sooner we're freed up from the prison, the self-imposed prison of unforgiveness, the sooner we're freed up to go and live the life he's called us to. So if application point number two is right the wrongs in your life. Application point three, check your agenda. For some of you, this will be interesting. I would challenge you to keep a journal at night and to recount your agenda throughout the day. Not the what did I do, but what was my motivation? What was my agenda in that? And just see. If being aware of how much of our day is about us doesn't change the way that we live our day. Application four is serve someone who cannot benefit you. Love serves. So find someone that can't benefit you and serve them. Maybe secretly but begin to live out and practice the thing that God has called us to do and in doing so, feel the love and the gratification from the Father and the Father alone. And then watch the way that that changes the way that you look at the world. Love serves, so find someone who can't benefit you and serve them. That's it. Four ways to begin to be more loving, to grow into greater love, and to love the world around us with a greater veracity and a greater ruthlessness than we've ever done before so that their eyes might pop out of their head when they go, what is up with those people from covenant? They just love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a struggle to even comprehend how much you love us. God, if I'm honest, I, I understand that that you sent your son to die for me. I understand that Jesus gave up his life that I might find mine. I understand that, but I so, I so rarely feel that, Father. So my prayer maybe this morning is that we would receive that love anew. That in our moments of reflection, in our moments of worship, we wouldn't simply uh, be remembering with our minds, but we would be feeling and remembering with our hearts that we were once lost and we're now found, that we were once far away and you've brought us near. Father, that in the midst of darkness, you sent the ultimate light. God, I pray you would make that real to us. God, I pray that we would be a people that are loving, recklessly and uh, undeniably to the world around us, that we would love those uh, in this community, in our office places, in our homes, we'd love without agenda, and we would do so for your glory and not for our benefit. Father, speak to our hearts. Be, be gracious to us, God, as we do self-reflection and realize how much of our lives are really about ourselves. And then, Father, I pray that you would graciously tease out in us a greater, more holistic, more beautiful love for the world that you've given us. Father, may it be forever changed. God, we love you. 
thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the resurrection, which gives us life. God, we pray that we would live that resurrection out this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name.